0: Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Good morning, if you're listening in the morning. I am recording early in the morning, and when I say early, I mean like 8 o'clock in the morning, (laughs) I normally record in the afternoon, so this is quite a different experience for me, I get to watch the sun come up instead of come down, so that's super exciting, Um, I hope you're doing well, I hope you're enjoying your Friday, or whatever day it is, whenever you're listening, This week is my last full week of classes for my first year of law school, which is super exciting. What's not exciting are finals coming up. That's okay. So, yeah, that's that. In terms of scandals I've seen in the news recently, um, I just looked at an article from yesterday, and there is a leading GOP candidate from Nebraska named Charles Herbster and he is facing groping accusations from eight women, Um, one of them who is a sitting GOP state senator who claims that he reached up her skirt at an event in 2019 So he is getting a lot of criticism because, believe it or not, groping people is not okay. If those allegations are true, which I tend to believe the victims of that because that's, I think you should believe victims and do the investigation. So hopefully that resolves itself if it's true which eight women are accusing him hopefully he doesn't end up in power because i wouldn't want someone who is groping people in power but that's just my opinion so that's (laughs) scandal updates i've seen recently that's that this episode is dark but in a different way last episode was about like child abuse and children abusing other children that resulted in deaths, and that was pretty horrible to research. This one is dark in its own different way. It's an environmental scandal known as one of the biggest environmental scandals in United States history. That is exciting, I guess. It's pretty horrible. I'm excited for you to learn about it because I had no idea about this before I started researching it. The sources I used for this episode is an All That's Interesting article from 2019, an EPA journal digitized, but it was from 1979 by E. Beck, a New York Times article from 1990 by W. Glaberson, a new york department of health report titled love canal health time bomb a politico article published just a couple of days ago which is actually how i discovered this whole thing it was by k o'brien and it was titled how a determined congressional aid helped break open the biggest environmental scandal in united states history new york Time's video um, on YouTube that kind of covered this whole thing, which was really helpful. Another YouTube video by E. Prossy on YouTube published or posted in June 2017, and then two Wikipedia pages. Those are the sources I used, so let's dive in. This is Love Canal, an environmental disaster. I'm going to start off this story with a a quote from the then Commissioner of Health of New York, Robert P. Whalen. Quote, The profound and devastating effects of the Love Canal tragedy in terms of human health and suffering and environmental damage cannot and probably will not be fully measured. The issues confronting our citizens and their elected and appointed officials in the Love Canal situation are unprecedented in the state's annals. We cannot undo the damage that has been wrought at Love Canal, but we can take appropriate preventative measures so that we are better able to anticipate and hopefully prevent future events of this kind end quote as you probably guessed this story takes place in Love Canal but Love Canal is not a town it's a neighborhood which is located in Niagara Falls New York and before we dive in I just want to say I did not know Niagara Falls was a city I knew Niagara Falls was like a waterfall I figured it was a place I didn't know that it was a city with neighborhoods I've never been out there I've been to New York City but I've never been to Niagara Falls anywhere really near Niagara Falls I'm on the West Coast, so the West Coast ignorance of what's on the East Coast and Eastern United States. So if you didn't know that Niagara Falls was a city, neither did I. We're learning together. Here we go. (laughs) This takes place in a neighborhood called Love Canal at Niagara Falls, which is super exciting that we just learned that. Um, And to understand what happened here, we need to understand the historical context of the area and the history of how the town came to be. It may not seem super relevant at first, but I promise it'll all play itself out. So starting back in the good old days of 1892, a man named William T. Love, he came to Niagara Falls with a dream of building a well-planned, like a dream industrial city that had access to water power from the falls. It would have large markets, exciting 1892 stuff like that. He proposed a canal between the upper and lower Niagara rivers which would then be able to provide for major transportation, major trade, and it would just help his city uh, not only grow but become this huge metropolis that he was wanting it to become. The city was going to be big, it was going to be grand, he was wanting it to have around 600,000 people which for the time was a lot. For comparison at that point, New York City had about 2.6 million people whereas today New York City has a Uh, almost nine million people so it definitely wouldn't have been like the biggest city at the time but it would have been a pretty pretty big area especially in the western part of new york right on that niagara river right by the falls it would have been this huge big dream city William, he secured 20,000 acres of land, he began to lay out how it was all going to go, he was getting things going, he got a bill passed um, at the state legislature that gave him almost unlimited power to build the city, including turning off Niagara Falls itself. And when I first read that, I was confused, so I had to look it up. Niagara Falls, you just can't like turn it off, it's not like a switch, but... There was one time in 1969 when they quote unquote turned off the falls where they blocked it because I think there was like some structural integrity issues or worries that they were having and so you can look at pictures of it and I'll post one of them. It's just... Niagara Falls but it's like completely dry it's a super weird sight especially when most pictures you see of it it's the huge falls or if you're like me an avid fan of the office you have the scene in your mind from Jim and Pam going there doing romantic stuff so to see it with no water is quite a weird thing to see. William had all this stuff going, he had it well planned, he had funding, a factory opened in 1893 and in 1894 there were manufacturers waiting in line ready to go to open plants in the area. All was going well for William and the town until the country fell into an economic depression, his funding dried up and most importantly Nikola Tesla had discovered a cheap way to transmit electricity over long distances, which meant that industry and factories, they didn't have to be right near a source of electric power, aka right by the water of Niagara Falls. This discovery of how to transmit electricity more efficiently, the economic depression, the funding drying up, it was all just becoming too much and the town basically died out. And while Niagara Falls was still there, it was still like a place, this dream city, this canal, it wasn't gonna happen. And the only thing that remained of the actual canal, because part of it had been built, is it was a part of the canal, (laughs) go figure, that had already been dug in the southeast corner of the city of Niagara Falls. It was decently sized, but it wasn't like a big whole canal, it was just part of it and for a long time it was reported to serve as a swimming hole for people in the area until 1920 when it gained a different use. In the 1920s, the city of Niagara Falls started using it to dispose of various things, including chemical waste. The city wasn't the only one throwing stuff in there, however, there were a lot of companies that were contributing to the waste, And one of those companies, the most prominent company to come out of this, was the Hooker Chemical Company. The Hooker Chemical Company was founded in 1903 and they were sited in Niagara Falls because of the low cost of power, the availability of water, as well as the availability of salt from nearby mines. They needed the salt to make the various chemicals that they were making. They did a bunch of things with chemicals, they made them, they made many products, good, fun stuff like that. I was looking up the chemical company and it had a bunch of things that they made. I think I maybe say it in here once, but it's not that relevant. They made a bunch of chemicals and they produced a bunch of chemical waste. And in doing so, they needed a place to get rid of this chemical waste. Nearing the end of the 1940s, they were looking for a place just like Love Canal, And whenever a company is looking for a place to dump toxic waste, you know it's going to be the start of a positive story with a positive ending. They were granted permission to start dumping their waste in Love Canal in 1942, and in that time, Hooker began placing 55 gallon barrels with chemicals in there, always a good thing to do. In 1947, Hooker bought the canal and turned it into a landfill, and in 1948, they became the sole owner and contributor and user of the site. So, while the city and other companies had been contributing to the waste for quite some time, starting in 1948, Hooker was like, this is mine, we're gonna dump so much stuff in here, we love it so much. Hooker continued to dump stuff in there until 1952, when it became clear that the site was going to be needed for something else, and that something else was construction. They stopped dumping chemicals there, and in the 10 years it was used as a dump site by Hooker, there were 21,800 tons of chemicals dumped there, including, quote, caustics, alkalines, fatty acid, and chlorinated hydrocarbons, end quote. Those chemicals, the um, barrels of chemicals, they were buried about 20 to 25 feet below the earth. It was covered with a clay seal and it was left there. So around the same time in the 1950s, the city of Niagara Falls was experiencing a population boom. There were people moving to the area, the city was growing and things needed to be built, such as schools, yay. The city of Niagara Falls, the Niagara Falls um, City School District, they needed land. And when they looked at the area, they were like, wow, look at this huge area of land that is flat and where grass has grown. And so they got in contact with Hooker to try and acquire the land. Before the school had reached out to Hooker to try and figure out if they could get the land, the vice president of Hooker originally thought, hmm, maybe we shouldn't sell this land, especially to a school, because of the risks that might be involved. But then he later changed his mind and wrote, quote, "...the more we thought about it, the more interested Wilcox and I became in the proposition." A school, however, could be built in the center of the unfilled section with chemicals underground." End quote. They concluded that, quote, "'We became convinced that it would be a wise move to turn this property over to the schools, provided we could not be held responsible for future claims or damages resulting from the underground storage of chemicals." End quote. So Hooker Chemical, the vice president, were like, "'Hey, school, we love the idea of building a school here We love the children, we love safety, here's the thing, we'll transfer it to you as long as we don't get any liability from anything that might happen going forward. What could go wrong? The property was transferred to the school board in 1953 with a clause in the deed that tried to clear the company of liability forever. The property was sold to the school board for just $1. And in part, the clause on the sale document said, quote, Prior to the delivery of the instrument of conveyance, the grantee herein has been advised by the grantor that the premises above described have been filled in whole or in part to the present grade level thereof with waste products resulting from the manufacturing of chemicals by the grantor at its plant in the city of Niagara Falls, New York, and the grantee assumes all risk and liability incident to the use thereof." And then it goes on to say that all people associated with the land before, so Hooker, Chemical Company, the officials, the workers, basically it goes on to say that we're going to have no liability from anything that might happen, but we're so excited to give you the land. The land was transferred over and the school was built in 1955, it was opened in 1955, and that year 400 children attended the school. The year that the school opened, there was a 25-foot area on the grounds that just crumbled away and exposed toxic chemical drums. And during heavy rains, it was filled with water that created large puddles that the children loved to play in. Yes, the children were playing in puddles filled with chemicals. Toxic chemicals. Good start to the story. A second school was opened six blocks away. Oh my gosh, okay. The school had extra land to get rid of because the school was not occupying or using all of the land that they were given, so they wanted to do something that makes sense if you are not completely aware of all of the toxic chemicals under the ground. They wanted to sell the land so houses could be built. But there were a few problems. First of all, because there were toxic chemicals under where the houses were going to need to be built, there wasn't going to be a way to put in underground facilities necessary such as sewer lines. But despite this, the city constructed a sewer system and while doing so, they broke the clay seal on the canal walls. The city removed part of the clay cap to use as fill dirt for a nearby school and they also punctured holes in the side of the sealed canal which allowed toxic waste to escape when it rained. And because of all of this, chemicals started seeping from the canal. There was one other big problem, the original deal between Hooker and the school, it was just for a school, not for homes. So none of the residents who were gonna be moving into the area, into the new homes, none of them knew about the history of the site. None of them knew that this was a chemical dumping site. The only thing they likely knew unless they were from the area and had seen what was going, in, going on before these homes were going to be built was that, hey, we're going to be moving to this nice new area right next to a school, nice open land, new homes, we're so excited to live here. And once those people moved in, the experience of the people living in the area was really anything but normal. Love Canal itself, um, in the surrounding area of Niagara Falls, it was a growing area, it was a good place to live, there were nice schools, churches, good shopping next to the expressway, that was the area overall. But the neighborhood itself, specifically around Love Canal, the landfill, people had experiences that should have been more alarming than i think people were alarmed at the time for one sometimes full drums of chemicals would just pop up from the ground and the way i think of it and the way people described it is like you know how if you put beach ball or some kind of ball under the water and then you let it go and then it just pops up at the top. That was happening but with barrels of chemicals coming up out of the ground. There were children playing at schools that would be burnt by things that they called firestones, which were just hot balls of chemical residue. And yes, <laughs> again, children were playing with them. There were workers in the area that would sometimes find themselves ankle-deep in sticky, smelly goo fun. (sighs) On top of those other things, there were more prominent and noticing things that were happening if that wasn't enough. There was black goo flowing out of the love canal. There were strange odors. People were finding weird mixtures of substances in their yards and their basements and at playgrounds. And in terms of effects that people were seeing on themselves, there were instances of children getting rashes after playing outside and more than just like oh, I got a, you know, a little allergic reaction. And there were a high number of miscarriages and birth defects from residents in the Love Canal area, way higher than like a national average or even just a local average. These things continued to happen until around 1977. 1977, 1978 is when people really started noticing what was going on and attention, much needed attention, started to be brought to this horrible thing, place, whatever you want to call it. There were multiple things that led to the public attention and really the discovery of what was truly happening here. First of all, residents they had been noticing it for a while and they were starting to get tired of what was happening. Not surprisingly, black goo and bad odors aren't great things to have near or in your house. And in the spring of 1977, the State Department of Health and Environmental Conservation, they started to do intense testing of the air, of the soil, and the groundwater. Another reason why this came to light was a very determined congressional aide named Bonnie Casper, and this is from that political Politico article that I mentioned at the beginning. Her name was Bonnie Casper, she was a congressional aide and was a congressional aide for the Congressman John Lafalse. Bonnie herself, she was motivated to do her job and to help her congressman for many reasons. Lafalse, he was the first democrat in the district since the Taft administration. And Bonnie had had been supporting a lot of liberal left-leaning ideas at the time, she marched against the Vietnam War, she wore a black armband at her graduation to honor the victims of the Kent State shooting, and other things that don't really seem like a big deal now because there's been a huge uprise in activism and what activism looks like, but Back in the 60s and 70s, those things were a big deal, especially for younger people to be coming out against older generations. So Bonnie, she was active in politics, she was supporting these movements, and she was really, really smart and good at her job. In 1977, June of 1977, she got a call from Joseph McDougal in Niagara Falls. She had figured that he was going to speak to her about a local issue, which is a lot of what her job was. Her job was to listen to constituents, figure out what was going on and to let the congressman know and to see how they could solve problems. So she just kind of figured that it was going to be some local issue, nothing really big, but it was going to be something bigger than she could have imagined. She was told that there were rusted chemical drums surfacing and rupturing on the east side of Niagara Falls. And again, that's just the chemical drums just popping out of the ground. At this point, Joseph and the other people they were still trying to figure out exactly what was in them, but preliminary tests had shown that there were toxic chemicals and toxic compounds near schools and playgrounds. McDougal was hoping that Bonnie could help him find $400,000 from the federal government so the city could fully figure out what was going on to investigate. And he also invited Bonnie and the congressman to come out and to see the site for themselves. Bonnie, she was like, heck yes. She started writing up reports about what was going on, what she had heard from McDougal, and she was trying to get the congressman to come to the site with her. Lafalse, the congressman, he really started to advocate for money and to get some answers. He was uh, petitioning and requesting money and resources from the EPA's new director, but nothing really came of that it soon became clear that no one was really going to help and no one was going to shell out all this money. And one of the big reasons was this was a small neighborhood in a town that in the grand scheme of things wasn't really important in the national spotlight. It wasn't New York City, it wasn't Chicago, it wasn't LA, Orlando, it wasn't any of these big cities that if things happen there that was gonna be well broadcast, especially in the 70s. I mean, Niagara Falls was definitely a tourist attraction, but this was a small neighborhood outside of where Niagara Falls, like the actual falls were. So why would the federal government shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars to help this one small neighborhood? This, however, did not deter Bonnie. There were months where she was convincing Lafalse to go visit the site, and eventually, they went in September of 1977, despite not being able to have any money at that point. So they went, they were expecting it to be bad, but when they got out of the car, they realized that this problem was way worse than they could have imagined. As soon as they stepped out of the car, a chemical stench burned their noses. Black sludge was seeping into basements, chemical drums were popping out of the ground right by a baseball field where kids played, yards were becoming puddles of chemicals that would eat away fences, and there was black goo for just endless yards and yards, just black goo everywhere. A resident of the area named Karen Schroeder had lived on the street since she was a child, and she remembered that before the playground was filled in, before there was a school there, There was a pit and there was a man there who had been burying chemicals that had gotten splashed by the chemicals. He at that point rushed to their house and Karen's mother sprayed the man down with the hose. But Karen had said that the hose was really no match for the chemicals. There were also times when the chemical drums would crack open and would spontaneously ignite. And one time in 1949, it took four hours for firefighters to put out a fire. In 1961, the fumes from the fire stripped paint off of nearby houses. It was clear at this point that this needed the attention of the congressmen and a lot of people, the federal government, the EPA, this situation was way worse than anyone could have imagined. As soon as they left, Lafalse started reaching out to anyone he could get in contact with to try and start getting resources for the area. His office was motivated to get things done, they were reaching out to people, they were making calls, requesting for money. But even though this was happening, the news wasn't really getting around. In fact, the news about this whole situation was so quiet that many people in the area, including the neighborhood where this was happening, didn't know what was going on. And these were people who maybe they didn't have the chemicals like in their backyard or in their basement, but they were still only like a block or two away from this toxic chemical site. They didn't know what was going on. One of those people named Lois Gibbs, she had just enrolled her son in kindergarten at the school that sat on top of the landfill. She was busy being a mother, and being a mother is a hard job, so she had missed some of the small stories in the newspaper about the landfill. And yes, they were small stories, not front page news. Her son, Michael, she was he was excited about kindergarten, but suddenly he started to have trouble with basic worksheets. He then started to go colorblind, and then at one point, Michael had a seizure and developed epilepsy there wasn't a history of epilepsy in the family, so there was a lot of confusion as to why this was happening, why all of a sudden Michael was having these problems in a short time after starting school when at the beginning of the year, he was a bright student, excited to learn, and now he was having all of these these difficulties. What was happening? Lois, concerned, she started reading the papers, she started to figure out what was going on, and within a few months, she went to go talk to her congressman and met someone who was motivated to get this figured out. Bonnie. Another person who was motivated to get awareness to spread what was going on was Karen Schroeder. She had organized a local protest group after a, a reporter named Michael Brown recommended it. Karen had lived in the area and she lived in the area and she had a son who had about a dozen birth defects. Because of the efforts of Karen and many others, by 1978, Love Canal was getting national attention. Karen had started the protest group and Lois Gibbs and Tom Heiser had started organizing people into groups. Women were taking a lot of the more prominent and public roles of the protests and activism. They protested, they rallied, and at one point, two epa officials came to love canal to talk about what was going on what they were discovering and this group of people held those two epa officials hostage for five hours so they could get the attention of the federal government these residents they were sick of what was going on they were seeing the effects that it was having on their children on the women that were having miscarriages children were getting rashes they were developing mental defects birth defects rashes People were breathing in toxic fumes. These residents had been dealing with this for years and years, and no one was paying attention, and so finally they were going to take charge of the situation. Multiple groups were formed and were involved, such as the Love Canal Homeowners Association, the Ecumencial Task Force, the NAACP, and the Concerned Love Canal Renters Association. Lois, she had started the Love Canal Homers... What? <laughs> Home... Huh... <sighs> She had, <laughs> Lois had started the Love Canal Homeowners Association to rally homeowners in the area. The group had made continuous complaints about the conditions, and the mayor at one point infamously said that there was quote nothing wrong end quote with Love Canal. Eventually, this activism, the voices of the protesters of the groups, it was getting the attention it finally deserved, and in 1978. President Jimmy Carter announced a federal health emergency and called for federal funds and resources to go to the area. It was the first time that emergency funds were used for a situation other than a natural disaster. Congress passed a bill titled the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act, which is more famously and well-known as the Superfund Act, and what it is, is it's a list to direct resources to area that areas that need cleanup. It tracks the areas, it tracks the pollution, what's going on, and kind of gives it a grade as to how toxic and how dangerous it is. And Love Canal, it was the first town on the list. I guess it Love Canal is not a town, it's a neighborhood, but it was the first area put on the list. So after the attention was brought to all of this, what happened is that the government purchased the land that the site was, like where the site was where all the toxic chemicals were, and that was good, but people weren't happy with just that because people were still living in homes that were right around the area, that were seemingly being poisoned, but they couldn't just afford to leave. These people, I mean, they weren't dirt poor, but they weren't rich. They couldn't just leave their lives and buy a new home. And also, no one's gonna buy their home. It's in a toxic chemical area. Eventually, the government bought rows of houses close to the site so those people could leave, but there were still people who lived close to the area, to the canal, and their houses weren't bought. So there was a lot of anger from people who were in the area, but they weren't able to be evacuated but eventually the government relocated more than 800 families and reimbursed them, and the government bought 400 homes closest to the canal and it demolished several rings of homes. The health impacts of Love Canal have been an interesting tale. At first there wasn't any conclusive data to prove that there were health effects causing any of the the issues, which of course there normally are not with early tests, However, blood tests starting in 1979 showed a very high white blood cell count and some chromosomal damage. 33% of the residents had chromosomal damage and in a normal population there is usually only chromosomal damages to 1% of people. So. There was a 32% increase in this small area, a high white blood cell count, it's usually a precursor to leukemia. Children were found to have, quote, an excess of seizures, learning problems, hyperactivity, eye irritation, skin rashes, abdominal pain, incontinence, and stunted growth, end quote. People in the area were having a higher number of miscarriages and children born with birth defects than was average and toxic materials were found in the milk of nursing mothers. Just to cite one example of a family that had some high birth defects, there was a family that included four children born total and two of the four children had birth defects. One of the daughters was born deaf and with an extra row of teeth, and one of the sons was born with an eye defect, and the family Um, seemingly had no history before then of anybody in their family being born with birth defects, so it wasn't genetic. Just to comment also, if, if barrels popping up from the ground doesn't provide a horrifying image to you, another quote from an EPA official who visited the site said that he saw, quote, one entire swimming pool popped up from its foundation and was afloat on a small sea of chemicals. End quote. An in-ground pool just popped up from the ground and was floating on chemicals on, to- on top of barrels just popping up from the ground and in those barrels were toxic chemicals. I'm going to post pictures of this on social media, but until you see the pictures and until you hear the stories and there are so many stories that I haven't like included, it, uh, it's just mind-boggling that this was allowed to happen. In terms of legal action that took place after this, Hooker Chemical was acquired by Occidental Petroleum in 1968, So it was just kind of like absorbed. So in 1994, a federal district judge ruled that Hooker, which was now part of Occidental, had been negligent but not reckless when handling the waste and transferring it to the Niagara Falls School Board. Occidental was sued in 1995 by the EPA and, they agreed to pay $129 million in restitution. From that money, $3.5 million went to the state health study, and there was another small amount that went to a health fund for people who were impacted by this horrible situation. There were also many residents that sued, and their lawsuits were settled out of court. For cleanup, most of the toxic waste was reburied because there was so much and the area was so large it, would have, it wasn't feasible to clean it up. So a lot of it was reburied and the site was covered with a thick plastic liner, clay, and uh, plastic. There was a big fence that was around the area now, or there is a big fence around the area now, and looking at areas kind of surrounding the canal, It's eerie because there are old abandoned streets and all of the houses have been demolished, so it's just empty streets next to a fenced off big area of land. And in total, it was determined that 248 separate chemicals have been unearthed from the canal. Love Canal, it's a tragic story, but it's also important because it was instrumental in getting the Superfund legislation passed and even though it was instrumental in it, it is unfortunately not an isolated incident. There are suggestions by experts that there are hundreds of sites like these that are being discovered or haven't been discovered and people are still living in conditions like those. In 2004, it was announced by federal officials that the Superfund cleanup had ended and it was removed from the Superfund list on September 30th, 2004. The cleanup process had taken 21 years and cost almost 400 million dollars. Even though there were a lot of homes that were demolished and torn down and a lot of people left the area, a lot of people still lived in Love Canal, the area of Niagara Falls. Love Canal was a huge um, black eye on the area. So, some residents were wanting to take it back, were wanting to take control of the situation, and there were 260 homes north of the canal that were renovated and sold to new owners, so today, people live right around the dump site. In 2011, a city crew repairing a sewer line discovered a pocket of chemical waste left less than half a mile from the landfill. The EPA came, they investigated it, and they determined that the waste was an isolated incident, that the site was not leaking, and it was left over from the original spill. But my question is, how come it wasn't discovered before? Why was there just a pocket of chemicals sitting underground? And I think that also leaves the question of, even if this site isn't leaking, where else could there be chemicals in this neighborhood, in this area? And I don't say that to like try and spread fear, But I think it's a legitimate question of, if in 2011, sewer crews, not environmental investigators, but a sewer repair crew found this while doing construction or doing repairs, where else could these chemicals be in this town? And how I know I just could not feel safe living in this area. Even though those chemicals were found in 2011, the dump site itself is covered, Um, there's grass and trees growing on top of it, it has been surrounded by a drainage system, and it is continuously being monitored by the EPA. An EPA official, when asked about doubts regarding living so close to the dump site, he said that that with the monitoring systems, with the EPA keeping track of what's going on, Love Canal is probably one of the safest places to live in the world because of the monitoring system. I don't know how I feel about that. I know that the EPA is smart in what they do, I'm sure they set up a good system, but even if the best system was set up there, I just don't think I could live somewhere knowing that there are thousands of gallons, thousands, or thousands of tons of gallons of toxic chemicals underneath the ground and that I'm living so close to it. I just don't think I, (laughs) I couldn't do it. And the last thing I want to really talk about is Lois Gibbs. She was not only instrumental in getting this discovered, but she has been instrumental in getting environmental legislation passed. She has become a huge activist. She is 70 years old today. And she is still active in what she does. She argues that there needs to be more environmental protections, that cleanups need to be handled better. She has been instrumental in making positive environmental changes. And while Love Canal is a horrible story and people are still dealing with the effects that have been brought onto them and their families, one positive thing to come out of this is Lois Gibbs and all that she has done for environmental policy and all that she continues to do because she is an... She is an advocate, she is someone who pushes for positive change, and she doesn't seem like she's going to stop anytime soon. So if you want to learn more about her, I highly recommend you look her up. She is an inspirational person, and with that, that concludes Love Canal, An Environmental Disaster. This story is so frustrating because it is a perfect example of how companies can take advantage of an area for money and as soon as they're done with it, as soon as it's convenient for them to leave, they do and for a long time there wasn't any liability. I know that they were sued and they had to pay $129 million, but in retrospect, it would've likely been cheaper to dispose of this waste in a better way and to not impart all of these health impacts on people. I also recognize that they were dumping these chemicals in the 40s and 50s when likely there wasn't much of an understanding or appreciation for how these chemicals would impact people in the long term. And also the city of Niagara Falls was part of this because they did break through the barrier themselves to build the sewer system, which allowed it to leak. So I know it's not purely on hooker chemical, but It is frustrating that companies like this can do all of this environmental damage, can impact these people, and they were found liable luckily, but not all of them are. And the last thing I'll say about this is I think it's a perfect example and a good reminder as to why environmental policy is so important. One thing that I love doing is trying to be green as much as I can using reusable straws, recycling reusable things, trying to limit my single use Things, but unfortunately, as much as I like to do it, it's really not gonna have a big impact in the grand scheme of things. If many people do it, it'll be good, but plastic straws are not what's ruining the environment. What's ruining the environment are lax environmental regulations, loopholes that companies are able to get around, and things are getting better. Bigger things like vehicles are becoming more efficient, electric vehicles are becoming a thing, but then it becomes a thing of how do we dispose of the battery when those cars die because there's toxic chemicals in there. So all of that to say, environmental policy is really important. It impacts everybody. It's not just a left liberal thing that is some liberal propaganda Environmental policy has real impacts on people, and I think that this story is a perfect reminder of that. No matter how you feel about politics, whether you're left-wing, right-wing, third-party, you don't care about politics, environmental policy impacts you. It's going to impact your future. It's going to impact your family, your children, if you choose to have children. So it's something that everyone should care about, and of course, we can go about it in different ways, but don't disregard environmental policy because it's important. We need it. We need to be more sustainable and this is a perfect reminder as to why we need to. Alrighty, on that note I am going to dive into a personal scandal. This one is short and sweet and to the point. (laughs) This person said, I had a job where I found a bunch of porn on my boss's computer. It was pretty normal stuff, but it was against company policy. I didn't bother mentioning it to anyone. (laughs) Okay, that reminds me of a story. First of all, thank you for sending that in. Um, That reminds me of a story. When I was in middle school, um, I had study hall and like sixth period, but this happened earlier in the day with different study hall. There was a study hall substitute teacher who was just there for the day because our person was out sick and they were on their computer, but they didn't realize that their computer was hooked up to the projector and they were watching porn while monitoring study hall with middle schoolers. And from what I remember, it was like normal porn, (laughs) but you shouldn't be watching porn in a school as a teacher, and don't project it on the wall where people can see it. And I don't know... It must have been the way the room was set up that this person didn't know (laughs) that he was projecting porn onto the wall, but needless to say, he got fired. Because believe it or not, projecting porn on a middle school wall to middle schoolers is not a great way to do your job. All that to say, thanks for sending in that scandal and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm going to post pictures on social media if you would like to look at those and if you want to stay up with the podcast. Um, on Instagram at Scandal101 Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook search Scandal101Podcast, you'll find us there. The website is Scandal101Podcast.podbean.com The website has the show notes and the show notes are also linked in the description of the episode if you want to check those out. The email to send in your personal scandal if you want it read on the podcast is Scandal101Podcast at gmail.com And with that, wish me luck going forward. I have finals coming up. So it's going to be a lot of studying, a lot of being in a library for like 12 hours a day. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You will have a new one next week. I almost said I'll see you again next week, but that's not a thing because this is an audio media, not a visual media. God, I'm knocking things around. Hear you next week. Have a good week. This has been episode 49 of Scandal 101.